Hello and welcome to the All 80s Movies Podcast, the podcast where we talk about the blockbusters, the flops, and everything in between for one of the freshest decades for movies, the 1980s. I'm your host, Bill Bant, and along with me on this journey revisiting 80s movies is my co-host, Jason Masick. Jason, I realize you must have gone through hell. Gone? Bitch, we're still here. That's right, listeners. We are discussing, with spoilers aplenty, the 1989 deep-sea thriller Leviathan, starring Peter Weller, Richard Crenna, Amanda Pays, and Ernie Hudson. Directed by George P. Cosmatos, this movie is rated R with a running time of 1 hour and 38 minutes. So, what is this movie about? What's on the box? If you grew up in the 1980s and went to your local video store to rent this movie, you would find this description on the back of the VHS box. It is What's on the Box. Take it away, Jason. Robocop's Peter Weller stars with Richard Crenna in this visionary thriller that takes you to the depths of the ocean and ultimate terror. Directed by George P. Cosmatos, this lavishly mounted production follows a team of underwater miners who stumble across the rusting wreck of a phantom Russian freighter, accidentally unleashing the monstrous remnant of a failed experiment in genetic engineering. The Academy Award-winning combination of special effects wizard Stan Winston and makeup expert Zoltan Elek pool their limitless imaginations to create a true masterpiece of the grotesque, the perpetually regenerating mutant aberration, gilded head, five-inch long spiked teeth, scaled body, and tail formed from human legs, presents a hideous image of unforgettable terror. Trapped five miles beneath the ocean with a creature that will not die and lives to kill. Welcome to your worst nightmare. Welcome to Leviathan. So that was what's on the box. Jason, how are we doing tonight? Pretty good, Bill Bantz. Uh, anxious to get into this one, man. Leviathan from the year 1989. All right, let's do that then. Let's move on to our earliest memories. What is your earliest memories of Leviathan? Why don't you start us off? Let's jump right into it. Hey, man, I remembered that, of course. Yes, Robocop was in this movie. Peter Weller. Hell yeah. And the other thing I remember from this year was the constant association I had between this film and Deep Star 6, which came out the same year. Now, there is a good chance I went to the theater for this one. I can't remember exactly, but seeing as though I was in high school and we'd go see this type of movie when it came out on Friday nights at the Lakehurst Cinemas at the Lakehurst Mall in Illinois, and... This was also a cable watch afterward, and I remember, again, there was this series of underwater action thrillers, sci-fi horror slash action thrillers that came out this year. The Abyss included the James Cameron Spectacular, and these films were spectacles, and they were exploiting our fears of the eternal deep. And, you know, on a sidebar, Bill Band, it just makes me think of when this happens in Hollywood, when you get a rash of films containing similar storylines or subject matter, like almost 10 years later in 1997, you'd get Volcano and Dante's Peak coming out in the same year. And then in 1998, you have Armageddon and Deep Impact going, you know, back to back. Uh, it's always about what's trending or what's topical, uh, whether it be war films, natural disaster films, found footage films, zombie apocalypse films personal or biographical films. It's what's in. It's what's now. It's what's hot. I digress. The only other thing I remember, man, is uh, Tentacles. And that's about it. I just had a vague memory of this film. It had been forever since I'd seen it. I remember thinking it was it was okay. 
Not sure it blew my skirt up that much. So I was looking forward to the revisitation today to see how it treated me. Uh, what are your earliest memories of Leviathan, Bill Bant? Yeah, this certainly for me was a rental. I did not see it in the theater. And what appealed to me was the cast. Like I mentioned, Peter Weller, Robocop, Ernie Hudson, Ghostbusters, Amanda Pays, Max Headroom, and on and on and on. And yes, 1989 was the year of the underwater adventure. And I think of all the movies, this probably had the cast that standed out the most. The Abyss, you had Ed Harris and Mary Elizabeth Antonio. But I mean, the rest of the cast, I didn't really know who any of those people, except for Michael Bean, of course. Yeah, hell yeah. But I think from top to bottom, Leviathan probably had the biggest pseudo name cast of all of them. And this was just one of those, every time I was on cable, I would just watch over and over again. I think this kind of just became a guilty pleasure. And yes, it is such a blatant ripoff of Aliens and the Thing. It just seemed to be on a lot, and I would just watch it a lot. Yeah, outside of that, I haven't seen this, oh man, in a good 15 years. And yeah, I just wanted to revisit it and just see see where I was, see if I still enjoyed Leviathan as a guilty pleasure. Yeah, absolutely. Agreed, man. So are we ready to discuss our initial thoughts, our takes on this film today? Or at least initial takes, I should say, before yeah. we go into the deep dive later on. Let's do some initial thoughts. What do we think after all this time? Well... I'm going to start with a definition, <laughs> Leviathan, the definition. Well, in biblical use, a sea monster identified in different passages with the whale and the crocodile and with the devil. Leviathan appears in the book of Psalms as a sea serpent that is killed by God and then given as food to creatures in the wilderness. And it is mentioned in the book of Job as well. Today, its name is used for something monstrous or of enormous size. So this film was directed by George P. Cosmatos, as we had mentioned. It's a story by David Webb Peoples, who uh, scripted Blade Runner and Lady Hawk before this. And then we get this screenplay, which is also by David Webb Peoples and somebody named Jeb Stewart. You know what else he wrote before this? A little movie called Die Hard. That's right. We get creature effects by Stan Winston himself, the man who'd worked on Aliens before this. And as you mentioned, Bill Bant, the cast, this movie has the cool guy from RoboCop, the older guy from the Rambo movies, the black guy from Ghostbusters, and the blonde girl from Beverly Hills Cop. And yeah, Amanda Pays. That's right, from Max Hedrum. So we get a soundtrack, a film score by the great Jerry Goldsmith. You know what he worked on before this? I'm just going to name a few movies you might have heard of. Star Trek, The Motion Picture, Outland, Poltergeist, The Secret of Nim, The Rambo Movies, Twilight Zone, The Movie, Gremlins, Runaway, Explorers, Legend, Hoosiers, Inner Space, Wall Street, Alien Nation, and The Burbs. Pretty good. So you put all that together, you get quite a team. So it sounds like it would make for a good movie, right? Well... I'll say this much. We start off with our miners and our deep sea mining shack number seven, approximately 16,000 feet below the ocean surface. And we're almost immediately introduced the external threat of the ocean at its depth, the potential exposure to pressure, the danger of equipment failure and lack of oxygen. We have the sci-fi horror concept trope of the limited crew within a claustrophobic and confined space. Not only is it typical, it is the setup. From the 1979 classic Alien and the classic John Carpenter film The Thing from 1982, as you already mentioned, Bill Bant. The storylines are very, very similar. Almost identical. 
In this case, we have a mining operation underwater working for the Tri-Oceanic Corporation that finds an abandoned Russian ship named the Leviathan carrying an alien virus, which was the part of a genetic experience gone wrong. We've got a doc that talks to the computer, just like Ripley talks to Mother in Alien. We have the doc sabotaging the mission, just like Ash from Alien. We have the overseeing corporation that has a questionable agenda. There's even a sea spider in this movie that is all too reminiscent of the face hugger from Alien. We have Fisher-Price flamethrowers as weapons. Are you kidding me? We have a countdown before implosion instead of explosion. There's a lift with jettisons one creature and crushes the head of another instead of the airlock device in Aliens. I mean, come on. The list goes on and on, and that's just Aliens and the Alien franchise, not to mention the thing and the creature and the the heads and the absorbing of different body parts, etc., and personalities. But... I digress. That's just what you get with this movie. So we get to know who's who in the crew and some of their character traits. We have Beck, the shack boss, who's a geologist. That's Peter Weller. We have the somewhat pretentious elitist doctor with a shady past, Richard Crenna, the wisecracking grease monkey, and six-pack Daniel Stern. Uh, we mentioned Amanda Pays, who plays Willie, the pretty minor, the attractive cast member, and she has a cool accent, so we know she's smart. We've got the desperate female minor Bowman who just wants to go home. That's Lisa Eilbacher. She's the pretty blonde, yeah, from Beverly Hills Cop. Because in this scenario, there's only three days left on their shift, on their mining shift. They're mining for silver, not to mention Ernie Hudson as Jones. And we've got a character named De Jesus, who I just like to call De Jesus. Yeah, we have the crew of blue collar workers trying to make their quota and get their paycheck. Does that sound familiar? Uh, there's also the element of, if we just get through the next few days, we'll be out of here. They're like Roger Murtaugh and like Lethal Weapon, just like, you know, I was this close to retiring and then shit hits the fan. Look, Bill Bant, I do like the underlying concept of a government genetic experiment gone wrong. The, you know, in this case, an experiment in a, like a developmental stage, which is to mutate humans into creatures that can survive underwater, essentially like fish people. Now that's super creepy to me. And that's something for like, let's say in today's world, a Guillermo del Toro could just really run with. Peter Weller's a pretty cool customer in this, I have to admit. Ernie Hudson's got great energy. He's always likable, right? But for me, this movie is not good. It is, like you said, and that's just my take. You can look at this, in my humble opinion, one of two ways, but this is the way I absorbed it. Just like the creature absorbs everything in its path in this movie, I absorbed this as a cheap knockoff, yeah, of the sci-fi horror films that came before it. And the, the weird thing for me is that it just looks cheap, and it feels cheap, and it's undercooked, and it came out four years after Alien, seven years after The Thing, ten years after the original Alien, and all of those films that came out years before just look better, never mind the characters and story development. Lastly... Hey, you know, the creature design and effects are pretty damn cool. Hell yeah, man, it's Stan Winston. And in moments, you're like, that looks great. But the cuts are quick, and it's really choppy. And we don't get to really take it in in its, all its glory. And I'm going to stop now and save some of it for later. I'm just glad this movie, for me, was only an hour and 38 minutes. Again, this just the way I took it. I think you can take it another way, Bill Bant. And I hope you explore the other way a little bit. Uh, so you go for it with your initial thoughts. Wow, Jason, that was a lot. <laughs> but I think you summed up most of it very well. Yes, it is a ripoff. And as we said, 1989, ton of underwater adventure movies. You have this. You have Deep Star Sticks, The Abyss, The Evil Below, Lords of the Deep, 
and then 1990, you have The Rift. So why did all these movies happen? Because James Cameron was going to do an underwater adventure with 20th Century Fox, and all the other studios go, ooh, this guy did The Terminator, and he did Aliens, and now he's doing an underwater adventure with 20th Century Fox. Let's beat him to the punch. And Leviathan is what they thought James Cameron was going to do because aliens. Yes. So basically he's just going to do aliens underwater. Right. Which if you watch the abyss, it's nothing like this. So I think the one thing I do like about Leviathan, I mean, I do like the setting. I thought it was shot really well. I thought it looked great. I thought the underwater Mm. stuff looked really good. I liked the mining facility. Like I said, yes, it is very remnant of aliens or alien, but I thought it looked really good. I was just surprised at the level of cast that I got for this movie. The creature itself, I wasn't that high on. And I agree with you. There's too many jump cuts that you can't really see it. I mean, you have Stan Winston working on the creature, but you don't really ever see the creature. Mm -hmm. Maybe two or three shots. So I thought that was kind of disappointing. But then even when I saw the creature, I was like, eh, it's okay. Yeah. But I thought it kept me entertained. It's a B movie with A-level cast and production. And that's why I kind of find it a guilty pleasure. I certainly understand why you don't like this movie. Anybody else that would tell me they don't like this movie, I get it. But for me, it's just one of those movies of its own. I'm just entertained by it. But it's so blatant that it's an Aliens, the thing ripoff. But there's just something about it that appeals to me. But at the same time, it is not good. I disagree. I think you do know. And I think you're right. And I think you're entitled to your opinion, Bill Bant. Absolutely. As many, many, many others will share your opinion and do share your opinion. I thought you summed it up really well saying that it was a B movie with an A-list cast. I, I totally agree. I think that's what it is. And it just seems really blatant to me. I don't find it as fun I think, as you did. I will not revisit this film anytime soon. I get why I liked it or probably watched it a few times when I was much younger. This is not an unwatchable film by any stretch of the imagination. It has entertainment value for sure. I'll say this much. It went by quickly, the hour and 38 minutes. I'll save some other takes for, I think we'll discuss the potential it had or different possibilities for this concept, this kind of film in our additional thoughts and questions. How about that? All right. We'll save it for there. So in the meantime, let's move on to favorite scenes or moments. Yeah. So Jason, after your um, initial thoughts, do you have any favorite scenes or moments? (laughs) My initial skewering of this film? Yes. I do actually. This first favorite scene I have is kind of an extended moment. I call this Jones Goes In to See Six Pack. So those are the names of two different characters. We have Ernie Hudson playing the role of Jones, and we have Six Pack played by Daniel Stern. At this point in the film, we know that the character of Willie, played by Amanda Paynes, and Six Pack have found the scuttled Russian vessel on the bottom of the seafloor named Leviathan, and they've brought back some booty. It's a safe filled with some booty. And while sifting through that booty, Six Pack subtly steals a flask that was among the goods and pockets it. Later, he shares that flask with Bowman, the flask being filled with vodka. As we find out, the vodka is no bueno. 
because it has been tainted with an experimental genetic engineering virus. The virus quickly infects Sixpack as his back starts to develop black and blue spots and scaly peeling skin. Sixpack dies from the infection shortly thereafter, but instead of telling the whole crew that Sixpack is dead, the doc leaves his decaying, festering corpse in an examining room in the medical bay, and Beck... The boss, the shack boss, and the doc decide they need to check everyone. Let's inspect everyone else for infection. And one by one, each crew member is cleared, and then it's Bowman's turn. But Beck and the doc get called away to make contact with the Tri-Oceanic Corporation. Meanwhile, Willie and Jones help Bowman onto the examining table, and Jones goes into the separate room where Sixpack's body is entirely covered by a sheet. Jones asks him if he's okay, thinking he's just sleeping, but we, the audience, know he's dead. And then suddenly, the body slithers under the sheet. Very creepy. That's the moment that got me. That was the first time in the film where I was like, oh, damn, here we go. That's creepy. It caught me off guard. Uh, there was a good camera angle in that moment. And of course, Jones doesn't want to bother him. He thinks, oh, I, he's sleeping underneath the sheet. He's knocked out, and he just leaves. Minutes later... We get Bowman, who goes in to check on Sixpack, and she sees his creepy body covered in the flesh, eating like bacteria virus, and realizes she's about to succumb to the same fate. Her hair's fallen out. She's got creepy peeling skin, like under her ear, on her neck, and she decides she'd rather die than fall prey to what Sixpack has fallen prey to. And yeah, that's my first kind of favorite scene slash moment is when Jones goes in there thinking that Sixpack is still alive and just sleeping underneath the sheet on the table. And then all of a sudden, Sixpack's body like slithers and contorts underneath the sheet. And uh, Jones just thinks he's writhing under the sheet and leaves him alone. And you're like, oh, this is not going well. Something's under there mutating within Sixpack's body. Yeah, that is a pretty cool scene because you think Jones is going to go in there and he's going to discover that Sixpack's dead because Doc and Beck are trying to keep this under wraps because they don't know what they're dealing with and they don't want to frighten the crew because they have no idea if it's an airborne virus and what it is that they're dealing with. And I think they only have three more days left. And Doc doesn't trust, of course, the corporation. And if the corporation knows that this is going on, they might not extract them. So he wants to get some answers first before he tells the rest of the crew. Yeah, it was one of those when Joan goes in there, you think he's going to discover what is going on. And he's just kind of doing that quiet talk. He's like, oh, he's going to figure it out because there's no response. He doesn't hear him breathing. Because they kind of show the lower half of him under of six-pack and stern under the sheets. And it almost does like that leg roll, like if you're sleeping and you kind of hear mm -hmm. noise and you're just kind of trying to get away from it. And then uh, Ernie Hudson Jones is like, oh, OK, yeah, he is asleep and then walks out and you're like, oh, wow, that was cool. So, yeah, I thought that was pretty smart how they handled that. There's two little movements. There's the one like slither of the you think, which is you think it's six packs like leg underneath the sheet. And then when Jones walks out, there's like a jerking motion also underneath the sheet, which is kind of sudden, which is pretty cool. It's effective. What's your favorite first scene or first favorite scene or moment? It's a moment. It takes place a little bit before uh, what you just mentioned. And as you already mentioned, Sixpack and Williams goes into the Leviathan. They find the safe and they pull out a bottle of vodka and Sixpack steals the flask. The crew's all excited because there's now booze because here they are. They've been underwater for 87 days and uh, it sounds like they haven't had anything to drink and they kind of want to celebrate. And Beck's like, nope, this is contraband. You can't have it according to citation, yada, yada, yada. So he takes it and puts it into his locker. And you kind of realize going into this in the opening that the rest of the crew is not a big fan of Beck. 
because Beck's kind of in charge, but he's just a geologist and he's not really a person that has had this kind of position before. So I think mm-hmm. everyone's kind of bitter at him and talk behind his back a lot. He doesn't really have a connection with the crew and this isn't helping either. So the crew decides they're going to break into his locker to get the alcohol and enjoy it anyway. And they get it and they're all sitting around. They have all these like specimen cups and they're all excited because they're like, hey, we're pulling a fast one on Beck. And they go to drink it and they find out it's just water. Beck knew that they were going to break into his safe and he swapped the vodka out with water. So he pulled a fast one on them instead. Beck understands where he stands with the rest of the crew. And there's even a moment later on the scene when Willie Amanda Pays asks him, like, how did you know we were going to break into it? And he's like, yeah, because that's the same thing I wanted done. Yeah. He wants to be part of the crew, but he understands his position that he has to supervise. So he kind of has to be a stickler, but he doesn't really want to be a stickler. He doesn't want to be down there to begin with either. I thought it was just a good moment for him. I totally agree. Now, this is why I hope our listeners don't decide to skewer me the way I'm skewering this movie in general, because there are things I did like about this movie. And one of the things I liked was a lot of the setup, because one of the things that I liked about the setup is the crew dynamic meeting, and it has to do with trust. And I'm going to get to that subject in a little bit, but that moment there where it's Peter Weller still trying to be a an authority figure and to demand some kind of respect here because he is the crew boss. And the fact that he may not entirely trust his crew or the crew may not entirely trust him, but it's kind of a cool dynamic and you understand that everybody's got a job to do. And yeah, so that moment is pretty cool when he swaps the vodka out with the water. It kind of pulls a fast one on him because it's something he would have done himself. Anyway, I enjoyed that moment as well. All right, so what do you have next for favorite scene or moments? Yeah, thanks, Bill Bant, for passing the baton. And I was in a position here where I had chosen another moment, and then I just kind of was like, here we go, listeners. This is more stuff. I actually was like, yeah, I'm, I'm liking this. Because initially I named this moment the eel head coming out of the severed leg because I thought it was really gross, and uh, that was very effective. But not too much later, after Six Pack has been basically devoured and mutated and consumed Bowman. Now you have two bodies joined together as one in this goopy, creepy mess with extended arms and tentacles, etc. Well, Beck and the Doc see that this has happened, and they take the corpse, or what they think is basically a corpse, they don't realize so much. Well, no, they do know that it's mutated into this creature that uh, is uh, slithering around. They throw it into a zipped bag, and the crew helps them carry it down to the lift to be lowered into the ocean and jettisoned. Now, the crew doesn't realize that this creature in this bag is still alive. They think it's the bodies of Six Pack and Bowman, and it's they're dead. But the bag starts moving as they're carrying it down to the lift. And they're like, holy shit, they're, they're alive. They're alive. And they try to open the bag, and everybody freaks out. And all of a sudden, the creature really comes to life and becomes animated. And a giant arm shoots out of the bag, claws Cobb across the chest. And then Doc and Beck, they just throw it into the lift. They lower the lift into the ocean. And in the meantime, part of the creature's body is severed the leg one of the human legs that has been absorbed into this mess has been severed and it swims off which is kind of creepy you see the leg kind of swimming through the water it's pretty disgusting so the leg continues to mutate and 
you got slime and goop all over it. It's like it's like a severed leg with a foot and everything. And out of the stump comes oozing this eel-like head of a creature, and it has this these teeth. And it's like, oh, it's just completely gross. And you're like, okay, now it's changing. And it's turned into a serpent-like creature. And anyway, I just thought that was creepy. This is where I was like, okay, this is working for me. Some cool creature effects and some good tension. Because now when you realize that they think that they've gotten rid of this mutated aberration, they don't know that this severed portion now has disappeared off into the ship. And again, it's take off on the alien thing where, you know, the chest burster, you know, squeals off and goes into a hidden part of the ship and they don't know where it is. Uh, so it creates some tension. But I thought it worked in this case and it was especially gross. Yeah, that's a good scene, too. I remember the first time watching it and when they're carrying essentially the body bag, thinking it was just Bowman and Six Pack who died from this virus. They're all like, it's moving, it's moving, we need to open it up. Yeah. And the doc and Beck are like, no, just get it on the list, let's get it out, get it out. And we know as the audience, like, there's something fucked up in there, don't open it. And, of course, it's first time kind of seeing the creature. Yeah, it's kind of a freak out moment. And the fact you think they get rid of it, and the fact they missed the severed limb falling to the side of the deck, you figure, okay, if that's it, it'll just die. But, nope, it doesn't. Disgusting eel-like creature crawls out. Which leads me to my... Probably one of my favorite scenes of the movie, De Jesus's death scene. Yeah, that's what I have next, too. So after they get rid of Bowman and Six Pack, basically Doc and Beck have to spill the beans and let him know what they think is going on. And the rest of the crew doesn't know what to believe. And they're upset that they feel like they've been lied to. And two of their crew members are dead. And they're only 48 hours of getting the hell out of there and they just want to leave. So Jones and DeSeuss kind of have an argument and DeSeuss was working on a puzzle and Jones smashes it and they kind of get into a little bit of a confrontation and they storm off and go their separate ways. So then later on, DeSeuss is in the kitchen and he's making popcorn and Jones comes in. He's like, hey, man, I'm, I'm sorry about what happened earlier. And he brings the puzzle with him, too. And he's like, hey, let's finish the puzzle. I know you really worked on this. I, I feel bad. I get it. Everybody deals with things certain ways and we just weren't on the same page with this. And Jesus is like, hey, that's okay. I totally get it. I'll meet you in the other room. I just made some popcorn. I just want to get some butter. So Jones walks out. And of course, it's the 80s. He's got his Walkman on. He's got the music up. And he goes in the other room. And he's watching TV and listening to his Walkman at the same time. He's got the puzzle out. Seuss is in the kitchen area and is trying to look for the butter for the popcorn. And he opens a cabinet in the top. And our little worm creature that came out of the limb is up there for some reason. I don't know how the hell it got up there, but it's out there. And it lunges at Seuss. And first it like literally wraps around his arm mm -hmm. and it is squeezing his arm so tight. He is screaming in pain. He's probably literally breaking his arm. And then the creature goes right for his chest and just digs it like no problem. Like a hot knife through butter, just right into his chest. And he's screaming for help. And you just see this eel like creature. It's got slime all over it and he's punching it and he's trying to get it to come out, trying to pull it out of his chest. It's disgusting. Oh, yeah. Jones comes in and sees Jesus like this, and he doesn't know what to do. He totally freezes. And I think what I like about this, too, because I think he gives an honest reaction. He wants to help this crew member, but he doesn't know what he's dealing with. 
and he doesn't want to touch it. So he just runs off and literally locks him into the kitchen. I felt like it was real. I, part of me is like, oh, you mm. pussy for leaving him. You know what? If that was me, I probably would have did the same goddamn thing because what the fuck is that? We just dumped two crew members in the ocean and they became some kind of weird thing I'd never seen before in my life. I was just with this guy a minute ago where this huge slug thing come in. Mm-hmm. It's a very disturbing scene too because it so quickly takes over Jesus and you can feel the anguish he is going through. It's like, God, that's something you never want to experience in your life. Not that I think anyone ever has, but just the fact that this creature was so quick into trying to take over him was mind blowing to me. It's the most effective scene of the movie because it is very scary. It's very squeamish, very surprising. And I just think that Ernie Hudson did a honest how to handle the situation was not to handle the situation at all. It's just try to run and get help. Oh, that's great, man. You hit all the major points in this one for sure. I totally agree. What really stuck out to me was, again, how aggressive and fast the creature attacks and how quickly it takes de Jesus. Because like you said, when it comes out of that overhead cabinet, it literally lunges right at de Jesus's chest, it burrows into his chest immediately. It goes into his chest cavity hardcore. And credit to de Jesus, the and the actor who portrays de Jesus. That's is that Michael Michael Carmine. Carmine, thank you. He is screaming, and it is raw, and it's it's hard to listen to because he is in extreme extreme pain. And then you see the eel attaching itself to his arm, to his torso. It's just like a giant leech. It looks like a giant leech, and it's just like sucking on his chest and burrowing into his chest. And it's interesting that you commented on Ernie Hudson's reaction, because I was not sure about his acting, to be honest, in that moment. I felt like at first he was kind of doing this effeminate thing where he held his hands up to his chest, kind of like, oh, my God. Like, And I'm like, what is he doing here? But it was more of like he in the moment was being squeamish because it's really quite a shocking scene. And the way that you framed it, Bill, you kind of turned me around on his performance in that and that it's a very honest reaction. He just is so confused, confounded in the moment and scared and immediately almost feeling what De Jesus is feeling. You see Ernie Hudson kind of clutch his chest. Like, what if that thing was on me? Oh, my God, this is weird. What is happening to De Jesus? And he cares about what's happening to De Jesus, but still just can't be there around him and is going to go get the dog. And he takes off locking De Jesus in the room. And that is definitely effective. Now, I want to comment on the first part of or at least what leads into that moment of the eel like creature attacking De Jesus is this dynamic again between the crew, like some of the setup I actually do like because we see these crew members handling death differently. Now that they understand that they've lost two of their fellow colleagues in Bowman and Sixpack and Jones is Jonesen. Jones is literally freaking out. He's like, what are we going to do with this information that we know that this virus attacked our friends, took them over and they mutated and it's a genetic thing that came from this Russian ship. What do we do with this information? What are we going to do about this? What's going to happen to us? What's going on? And meanwhile, you have Jesus working on a puzzle, fantasizing about his future when he gets off of this mining operation and he goes to ski in the Alps. And then you have Willie, 
who's uh, we understand likes to exercise and uh, she likes to run around the shack just to stay in shape. And she's getting ready to go for a run to kind of run it off because she's that's how she deals with it. And then you have Cobb and he's dealing with it in his own way. And it's kind of interesting. And that's why Jones is just like, why aren't you all losing your shit right now? Because this is bad. And DeJesus is kind of like, well, what are we going to do about it in this situation? What are we going to do about it? Uh, so I kind of like that in that dynamic. That's a little interesting to me. But ultimately, it really is all about this attack sequence with this crazy eel leech serpent really taking DeJesus. And then the scene ends when you see that these doors that are these giant, what look like these giant metal rolling doors that close. Uh, they look really heavy. And... Uh, the final shot is of DeJesus with his arms in the air, just screaming as loud as he can when the door closes on him. Good scene. Yeah, I think, yeah, unless it was my actual kids, I'm not touching that thing either. I'm running. Oh, hell yeah. All right, so moving on. So my final scene moment is a moment, and we've already kind of touched on this on the very beginning with your quote of, I realize you must have gone through hell. So throughout the movie... Like I said, this mining corporation, they're trying to meet this quota over these 90 days. And Beck communicates with a character. Her name is uh, Martin, played by uh, Meg Foster. And throughout the whole time, he's telling her what's kind of going on. And he tells her that there's an infection among the crew and they want to get out of there. And she's being your typical business bitch. With, well, you know, we don't want to come pick you up early because you only have two days left. Then it would look bad on the corporation. She's looking at the bottom line. And it's great, too, because every time she's on screen and they have these conversations, it's as soon as she's done what she's saying, she has like this remote and she just clicks, clicks them off every time. If they have a conversation with Doc and he explains what's going on, she's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, take care of it. Click off. And we're at this point in the movie where it's just Willie, Jones, and Beck. Everyone else has succumbed to the creature. And Beck's talking to her and says, hey, we need to get the hell out of here now. And she's saying, you know, we can't do this because there's a hurricane coming. So there's no way we can reach you. And initially we said it was going to be 12 hours, but now we realize the hurricane's heading right for your direction. It's going to be another 48 hours. So just hang in there. And that's when she says the infamous line of, I realize you must have gone through hell. And Ernie Hudson comes back with, gone? Bitch, we're still here. And they realize there's no way they're going to make it another 48 hours. And in the back of their mind, they realize it doesn't matter if they're going to come in the next hour. They're not getting out of this. The company's not going to pick them up no matter what uh, was going on topside. It's a fun scene. And this is kind of going into the whole final action set piece and whatnot. And this is almost like an all is lost moment, if not one of those moments that happen in near this scene. Anyway, you know, good casting. Like you said, Peter Weller's, he's cool, man. I like him as an action hero. Always have a handsome leading man. He has got this kind of cool, smooth experience. He has a great delivery. He has a kind of unique voice, look, kind of a cool customer. And then Ernie Hudson just brings a great energy, and he's kind of comic relief in this scene. It was a relief in general in this movie where I genuinely laughed at that line. Gone, bitch, we're still here. We're still in hell. You know, it's a great line. It's fun. And it's like, oh, well, how are they going to get out of this now? 
Yeah, Meg Foster, when she comes on and she's got those ice cold eyes, those ice, those oh, yeah. like, cool, like blue eyes, she just exudes villainous, you know? Uh, and she plays the part well, uh, just as the kind of corporate representative, the what tri oceanic corporate representative. She's also effective being the, the bad girl in the screen <laughs> the whole time. Oh, yeah. She's always spinning it. She always has another objective, and her bottom line is profits, and you really see that by the end of the movie. Yeah. I'm done with my favorite scenes and moments. Uh, did you have anything else? Hello, this is Jason, co-host of the All 80s Movies Podcast, with a message from Factor Meals. Warmer, sunnier days are calling. Fuel up for them with Factor's no-prep, no-mess meals. Meet your wellness goals in time for summer, thanks to the menu of chef-crafted meals with options like Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. Factor's fresh, never-frozen meals are dietitian approved and ready to eat in just two minutes. So no matter how busy you are, you will always have time to enjoy nutritious, great-tasting meals. With 35 different meals and more than 60 add-ons to choose from every week, you will always have new flavors to explore. Treat yourself to restaurant-quality meals that feature premium ingredients like filet mignon, shrimp, and blackened salmon. Head to factormeals.com slash 80smovies50 and use code 80smovies50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month. That's code 80smovies50 at factormeals.com slash 80smovies50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month while your subscription is active. Now let's move on to Swiss cheese and complaints. And why do we call it Swiss cheese? Because although this movie is delicious, it does have holes. So Jason, I think you have a couple of complaints. So I'm going to let you go first (laughs) on this one. Well, I'm going to start my first complaint with a compliment. Because, Bill like I've, I've been saying here, the setup is not terrible. We know going into this film to expect certain things. Look, we've got a ragtag crew, a bunch of blue-collar workers in that confined area that stumble upon either, you know, this stumble upon a Russian vessel in this scenario, but like an alien, they stumble upon an abandoned spaceship that's carrying an alien creature within the egg. And then in the thing, it's an Arctic research team that's, you know, that's infected by a virus that came from a spaceship that was nearby, buried underneath the ice for a 100,000 years. So guess what? This has been done. Guess what? Most ideas have been done. There are very few original ideas out there anymore. So we, I do give this some grace, some forgiveness here on that. Because you know why it's been done and they keep doing it? Because it works. It's pretty cool. The underwater environment in this scenario, it's scary. Uh, yes, now we've gotten to know our stock characters and we understand this hierarchy and their dynamic and the discovery of the Russian ship. So there's the mystery building. It works. This common sci-fi horror trope does work. Fine. Now, the mystery, like I said, mystery building as to how the Leviathan got there. Why was that Russian vessel scuttled? What happened to its crew? And now there's the issue of trust. I kind of touched on this. We know from the opening that the crew doesn't necessarily have faith in Beck's leadership skills because how he handled the incident with De Jesus losing oxygen in his submersible suit. Now, we know that Beck doesn't trust the dock necessarily. He knows that the dock has a particular history before he came aboard this mining crew. We know as an audience, we don't trust the dock. He's a little suspicious. We know that Beck doesn't necessarily trust his own crew. So that's good tension setup. 
we've got this great setup. And then we're 37 minutes into the film and we take a little break for a relationship that's possibly brewing between Willie and Beck, which felt a bit forced in the moment and the music really overcooks it. But it turns out all this, the halfway decent setup doesn't amount to jack shit. That's my problem. That's my complaint. I've gone from compliment to complaint because the distrust between characters doesn't play into the story at all, nor does the relationship between Willie and Beck. I mean, they kiss at the very end, which is anyway. So it's after minute 40, it just turns into a straight up survival story. And to me, then it's not interesting because then it's just straight up rip off. But there's no nuance to it. That's my first complaint. The decent setup taking a common trope in the concept itself and still adding some nuance with some characters that, oh, okay, I can identify with these people. And I see some relationships developing and some some tension building. The mystery is decent enough. I can ride this train and all for naught that trust and all that stuff. There's no, that doesn't play into the character dynamic once the shit hits the fan. Uh, it's just a creature feature after that. Yeah, no, that is a good complaint because pretty much after... The opening scene when they're in the ocean, they come in and complain how they don't like Beck. And you kind of sense of all who the characters are. Just watching, you're like, okay, he's gone. She's gone. He's gone. She'll stay. He's gone. I think the one character that I think worked the most, that almost kind of had a pseudo arc, was the Doc. Sure, okay. He has a checkered past. There's a reason why he's down there. But he does take interest he sees that there's a mystery and he tries to solve the mystery. And then when he's solving the mystery, he regrets what he's done before to get him down there. And then he realizes what the effect could happen if this mutation leaves this submersible or this little colony or whatever we want to call this vessel that they're on and realizes that no one should survive because if they do and it gets out, this is not good. This could destroy humanity. So I like that he understands that he's going to have to make a sacrifice in order to save everyone else. And the crew, unfortunately, is going to have to meet their demise for it. I mean, granted, his, his plans get thwarted, but I kind of liked his story the best. I thought he was the most fleshed out of all the characters. I totally agree now that you say that. We love Richard Crenna. Yes. Uh, we will continue to love him on this podcast. Uh, we talked about him a little bit with Body Heat. We'll talk about him in the future when we do uh, First Blood and the Rambo franchise, because he's wonderful in those films. And mm -hmm. uh, probably best known, at least by our generation, for those films in particular. Uh, however, regarding this character and some tropes associated with the Doctor character in the sci-fi horror films, it's interesting because I, I had made a comparison to him between him and Ash in Alien from 1979. Now, in Alien, Ash is actually part of the Wayland Corporation's agenda, and he is trying to save the creature uh, because he respects the creature as a perfect organism. And in this scenario, the doc played by Richard Crenna realizes the real danger of this virus and knows kind of the his higher calling is to end it here, end it all here can't have this virus unleashed upon the surface. So he does, in essence, sabotage the mining station by jettisoning all the escape pods, but he's trying to do so for the greater good. 
And I think it's also interesting because he has this checkered past. We learned that he had developed some sort of serum that ended up killing a bunch of patients, but it, it wasn't kind of, it was his fault, but not really his fault that something went awry, but obviously his reputation now has been tainted and it has followed him to this point. And I find it interesting then in Alien 3 or Alien Cubed, if you will, my favorite character in that film, which comes out after this, was Charles Dance, the doctor who has a checkered past. He's on the prison planet because he had killed patients, I believe, while he was under the influence, I think, or something to that effect. But he is a flawed character. And Charles Dance is just a wonderful actor. But I think that's interesting. The doctor with the flawed history and the kind of the scar, the emotional scars, but the scarred conscience uh, that he's dealing with. So good call on the arc with the doc in this. And then I'm going to build even more on this. What I was just, here's a complaint, man. Speaking of character setup, they did Daniel Stern dirty in this movie. I like Daniel Stern as an actor. Uh, he's probably best known as, you know, the one half of the duo of goofballs, he and Joe Pesci that break into the house in Home Alone. We talked about Daniel Stern in Blue Thunder. He's a very likable actor. They make him out to be this crass idiot who sexually harasses his female coworkers when he plays the spider gag on Willie, and then she returns the favor by putting the dead spider under his pillow. He really dials it up and goes ballistic, and it's weird. I don't know. I thought it was misuse of a really likable actor. I agree with you 100%. I think if you were to sit him down and say, hey, if you could have a do-over of any of your characters, who would you do? I would not be surprised if he said Sixpack and Leviathan. I couldn't stand him in it. Yeah, if he's supposed to be a comic relief character like a Hudson, speaking of... Uh, then just give him some other business to do, but not to be so blatantly crass with the sexuality and the sexual jokes. Right, because the problem is he's the first one that gets infected, and you you just don't care. But you know what? You deserved it. You're a dick. <laughs> yeah. That doesn't work. You want someone that you kind of have some sort of connection with, so then you feel bad that this is all going down, but with him, zero. Yeah, good it point. It felt worse for Bowman. Oh, yeah. She was very sympathetic when she started uh, deteriorating. Right. But even her character was just, let's just state the obvious. She's there for the exposition dumps. Yeah. And it was hilarious because, you know, we did Beverly Hills Cop a couple weeks ago. And I was thinking about back in my mind, I'm like, what the hell has Lisa ever done outside of Beverly? I couldn't think of anything else that she was in. And then when I started watching this, it was like, oh, ding, ding, ding. There we go. Hey, I'm right there with you. I was totally surprised when I looked over the cast list. I'm like, oh my goodness, it's Jen from Beverly Hills Cop. What do you have for complaints, man? Or Swiss cheese? I talked about one of my favorite scenes as being uh, the Jesus death scene. So Jones leaves him by locking him into the, the kitchen area, the mess hall. And he asks Cobb to guard the door. Well, five minutes later, they come back with the doc and Beck. And the door's already busted open. And I'm like, wait a second. It took six-pack... 36 hours to start mutating, but Jesus is already mutated enough that he can rip through a steel door. Yeah, like somehow has superhuman strength. Yeah, I don't like when they play around with the, like you like to say, the lore. Totally, totally agree. It's the power scaling. Yes. If we're led to believe one thing about the, yes, you said it, the lore, the mythology, whatever, the uh, story of the creature and how it develops, you know, we're learning about it and then all of a sudden, it can do something way beyond what we understand it can do. It's it's off-putting. It's distracting. Right. It, it just makes it too convenient for the story, and I don't like that. Great call, man. Now, here's a complaint. 
this was one of my favorite scenes. It's when Jones walks into the medical bay with Willie and then proceeds into the room where Sixpack's disease-ridden body is lying out in the open. Un- Granted, it's under a sheet. Shouldn't that room just, shouldn't be that in quarantine on lockdown? The doc has put that body aside knowing that Sixpack has died as a result of this viral infection. That body has to be secured. There's a swinging door that you can just go in and out of that room. Yeah, I was just freaking out. I saw it first when Beck went into that room. I'm like, wait a minute. That's a swinging door that you can just go right into this room where this guy died. You just have to secure the room. It's got to be a, at least, at the very least, a locked door of some kind. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. Because when the doc has Beck look at Six Pack after he has passed, he, he hasn't put a mask on because yeah, they don't know what they're N95. doing with Yeah. I hope that protects you. Yeah. <laughs> Kind of shocked how easy it was for Jones to go in, too. I thought it was extremely reckless and negligent of a doctor to have a body that's died from a virus. Especially today, you'd be like, oh, no, that's you're on that's on lockdown. You got to put that body in a that's got to be under lock and key. <laughs> you know what I mean? Right. Nobody's allowed in there without a full hazmat suit on. But I get it, too, because you're down there to do a job, and I don't think that's something that's going to be in the back of your head, that there's going to be some kind of virus. Point so it, taken. They could be underprepared, ill-equipped right. for that yes. scenario. Sure. But yeah, I would somehow move the body somewhere else or something. They shouldn't have left it in there where someone could easily get access to. I agree mm-hmm. with it, but I, I could see why it happened at the same time. I got you. Fair enough. I did think the same thing. I was like, oh man, you just walk right in there. Jesus, that's not good. <laughs> What if this thing's airborne, man? You know what I mean? Yeah. So my next complaint is the ending. <laughs> okay. I have a question about that too. So let me let me hear I, you guys. See if we're on the same page. Well, I just thought the ending was terrible. I, I was like, this movie is a ripoff of a lot of sci-fi horror, but it becomes a derivative of Jaws. Where? What is happening at the end of this movie? Holy shitballs. There's literally a shark attack that they somehow avoid. Folks, I'm skipping to the end here. Our three survivors, spoiler alert, are Beck, Willie, and Jones. They magically get to the surface, and we think they've escaped the danger of the uh, genetically mutated creature. And now they're trying to wave down a rescue helicopter, and there's literally about to be a shark attack. They're now being circled by sharks that they somehow avoid. And then suddenly what I'm assuming was a second genetic aberrated creature because there was one we know that got crushed by the lift and then now this other one appears. We're supposed to believe that there are two anyway. And it ends up killing Jones, but Beck then uses a detonation device and literally says, say ah, motherfucker, instead of smile, you son of a bitch, from Jaws and manages to toss the device into the mouth of the creature and it explodes. Kind of like in a movie called Jaws. Yeah, Jaws, when Brody shoots the air tank that Jaws has swallowed and it blows him up. They're not even trying to cover up the fact that they're doing a bad knockoff of a great movie. Like, what is going on? I could not believe it. That's my complaint. Yeah, I totally agree. What I found weird is I'm thinking that creature is the six-pack Bowman creature, what it's become. Okay, that I had entertained that thought as well because they had jettisoned that creature out earlier in the film. Right. We didn't know what became of it. Right. So 
we find out in the beginning of the movie that they're 16,000 feet below the surface. Why the fuck would this creature follow them 16,000 feet to the surface and attack them? Why does it need to? That's what made no sense to me. Mm. Like, did it see them taking off and go, hey, I need food. There's probably nothing down here. I should chase the three <laughs> people. Dude, there's like 8,000 meals on the way up. Why are you going after the Jones, Willie, and Beck? Because it's like Jaws 4. This time it's personal. That's true. That's probably what it is. Why did the creature come to the surface to begin with? Because I kind of thought that <laughs> midway through the movie, wait a second, they got rid of Bowman's six-pack. Now the creature's running around somewhere in the ocean. And then at the end, I was like, oh, shit. No, that's the Bowman six-pack creature. Mm. Why the fuck did it come to the surface? I still think there's another creature unaccounted for. I'm not sure. Now, see, if they held longer on the shots of the creature, we could tell which one it was because we do see the faces of the people that the creature has absorbed. For instance, we see Sixpack's face. We see Bowman's face in the one creature. We see the Doc's face and Dehuzus's face in the other creature, right? So, if, like, at the end, when that creature pops up on the surface of the ocean... For the final last attack, if they we could have seen a close up on I don't know if you can do a freeze frame on it and see which one it is to see if you can see like six pack or Bowman's face right. in the body to kind of identify which one it is. Yeah. I love the fact that you bring up the sixteen thousand feet below because that's one of my nitpicky complaints. I actually put the title card in the beginning of this film says that the mining shack, the mining operation is sixteen thousand feet below the surface. That's mm-hmm. a little over three miles to the ocean floor. Then Bowman shortly thereafter says they've been working for two months, two miles deep. And in the back of the box description, my what's on the box segment, it says that they're five miles deep. Right. (laughs) Nobody knows how deep they are. I'm like, come on, man. Can we just go on the same page? How deep are you guys? I only have one more complaint. What else do you got, Bill Dan? Okay. So I have two left. All right. It's the avoid the creature, try to kill the creature. And there's a scene when the creature actually grabs Beck and you think Beck's in trouble because the creature has his arm around him. And then the creature tentacle is coming around to bite him or I don't know what the hell's supposed to do. And Beck finds like a little saw blade to cut yeah, the, the hand tentacle. saw. Right. And the creature lets go of Beck. Now, earlier, when they go to dump the six-pack Bowman creature, it claws Cobb. Mm-hmm. So you're telling me this creature has its grip around Beck. It's a creature. It doesn't do anything to Beck. Didn't scratch him. Nothing. It should have eviscerated him. Yes. Totally agree. I thought the exact same thing. I thought Beck was done for once that creature grabbed him from behind. Yeah. And he's got him in a hold for a bit. It takes a little while for Beck to grab the handsaw. Meanwhile, you've got Jones holding that giant metal door open. And oh, yeah. I don't even know how he's Superman strength. Like, there's no way. It's adrenaline strength. Unless that door isn't metal, it's just plastic. Yeah, that whole scene I was just laughing at because it's, let's just yell every line. Willie! Beck! Get to the door! With a little better editing in that sequence, there it had the right, like, I'm like, okay, this is kind of an, a good little set piece. There's a lot going on with Willie 
the floor is falling out beneath her and she's got to hang on to the ceiling and swing across. And there's a lot of moving pieces in the sequence. And then Jones is holding open the door and Beck gets attacked by the creature and we think he's a goner. So many things going on, but it takes forever. The suspension of disbelief goes out the window. No, it doesn't work. No, I agree with you. It had the makings of a good set piece, but Mm -hmm. I don't buy it after you drag it out for too long. My last complaint is with the movie poster. Oh, I hate this. I can't stand this, man. It's misleading. And I don't know if this is a lost in translation sort of thing. I don't know if we'll get into a deep dive on this with our trivia and facts. But uh, this film was filmed in, I believe it was Italy and uh, a couple other European locations. But there were some language barriers. This is an Italian produced film and things like that. Regardless... I don't know if that had anything to do with the production of the poster, but when the image on the poster does not correlate to what actually happens in the movie, that bothers me. And I get that maybe you could say, well, the image is just supposed to kind of convey an idea of the concept of the movie. Okay, fine. But the tagline on the top of the movie poster is how long can you hold your breath? And we see the image of Beck in his metal, like the big submersible diving suit holding on to like an inflatable device rising to the surface with Willie in tow in nothing but a bikini holding on to his leg, which makes it look like a super intense scene because she must be holding her breath all the way up. But no, that's not how the final scene plays out at all. In fact, Beck and Willie and Jones are all in suits and don't eject until the end of the sequence. So the image you see on the the main poster for this film is fraudulent. Ooh, good word, fraudulent. I love looking at foreign posters of American films, and you're like, what the hell movie did they watch? And this is all these drawn images that have nothing to do with the movie itself, or they come up with these crazy lines. And Yeah, right. There's no sense of the creature itself in the poster either. Not that the creature has to be shown in full or anything, but you wouldn't know it was a creature feature either, would you? No, maybe just by the title, but... It doesn't convey anything what the movie is going to be. Yeah, it's not a good poster. Well, it's kind of a good poster, but it's not a good poster for that movie. It looks good. It looks intense. Yeah. If it was, it's just that that doesn't happen in the movie. Right. That way. Because I literally studied the poster. I was like, oh man, is that, I forgot. Is that what happens? Is that they don't have enough suits? And the only way is that maybe... Peter Weller, his character is the only one that can operate the suit, so he has to be in the suit, and she's going to have to hold her breath for a certain distance in order to get to the surface, and that he's going to be using some sort of thrusters and shooting up as quickly as he can while she holds her breath, holding on to him outside of the suit. That's an intense scenario. I couldn't tell if that was a warning or if the suits that they were in because they were rising so quickly from a depth of 16,000 feet to the surface. Was the decompression signal a warning, or was it saying that the suits were providing decompression as they were rising? I can only assume that the suits had to be decompressing them, because there's no way they would have survived that then. Yeah. But the fact that when the creature disables the mining facility, and they find out they have 10 minutes to get out, and they got to get into the suits, and they got to go in the, the lift, and of course, the lift's not working for Beck. I'm like, yeah, he imploded with everybody else. There's no way he's getting out of there in two minutes. Oh, yeah. 
But that made me also think of what happens to Miguel Ferrer in Deep Star Six. That was a good death. Oh, that was awesome. But I'm like, wouldn't something similar happen? Right, that should have happened to them too. happen to these guys? Yeah. I was going to ask you because I'm not a scuba diver, but I'm, I'm like, wait, even when they get out of the suit, that's still a, a distance. Oh, yeah, absolutely. So I know as a certified scuba diver, I like saying that, but I am by no means an expert. I mean, I think the deepest I have dove has been probably 100 feet. Most dives are very recreational dives that go to 40, 40 to 60 feet. So that's nothing. It's fun and it's awesome. But you always have to do what's called a safety stop at 15 feet for three minutes. So you rise, you have a technique, you basically are deflating your BCD, your buoyancy compensating device, and you are going to the surface and you have to, you have your depth gauge. And you can tell how deep you are. So you're rising. You When you see it go to 15 feet, you stop and you try to hover. And there's a way to establish buoyancy at 15 feet. So you hover there for three minutes. And that's your safety stop to make allow your body to decompress so that you don't rise to the surface too quickly. So after the three minutes expires, then you go to the surface and you're fine. But even after that, there's decompression time and inter- surface intervals that you can you have to be aware of. Uh, before you dive again, and that determines how deep you can dive and for how long. And there used to be only these tables that you'd have to fill out by hand in order to calculate this. That it, it involves math, but now they have all these electronic gauges, of course. And I am just a recreational diver, and uh, I go with groups that are led by dive masters, and they take care of all that stuff for you. You don't ever have to worry about all that the dive tables as much or the gauges if you don't want to, but. Yeah, there's a lot of technical stuff that goes into it. So even if you have even a superficial knowledge of diving, you're like, oh, yeah, no, they're dead. <laughs> right. you, can't, you can't do that. You're in big trouble if you rise that quickly from that depth without stopping to allow time for decompression. Yeah. Once they got out of the suit, they probably still had another 20 feet to go. Mm-hmm. Yeah, easily. Yeah, they're all yeah. left up. Oh, well. All right, um, let's move on. <laughs> That's no it. one go. Yeah. <laughs> they hey, all die. We, we got this. This is where we got to step back. We go. Well, you know what? It's just a movie. It's right. just a movie. We got to go with it. Yeah. And we'll get to that again. Look, there's two ways to watch this kind of movie. I'm being an asshole. I get it. But if you want to sit back and you don't want to think about this stuff, and you're just like, oh, that was exciting. Good for you. There you go. Just go with it. Or like Bill says, oh well, yeah. They should have died at least six times. Yeah. All right. So that takes us to, hey, it's that actor. All right. So in this segment, we spotlight an actor you have seen in many other films, an actor making their big screen debut, or an actor that makes an uncredited cameo. It's, hey, it's that actor. So for me, I went with Michael Carmine, who played DeJesus or DeJesus. So Michael was born in uh, Flatbush, Brooklyn, and went on to study acting at the California Institute of the Arts. He made his first film appearance as an extra in the disaster film Roller Coaster. He actually shot part of it out here at Six Flags. He had a small role in Brian De Palma's Scarface, and then he had two guest appearances on Miami Vice, season one's Nobody Lives Forever, and season three's Everybody's in Show Business. His first appearance on Miami Vice landed him a major role in Man's Band of the Hand, 
1986, which is directed by Paul Michael Glazier, who, as we remember, directed Running Man from our season one episode. Other 80s movies included Invasion USA and Batteries Not Included. His last film role was also in 1989, which was in the movie Longtime Companion, in which he played Alberto, a man dying of AIDS. Unfortunately, Michael died on October 14th, 1989, at the age of 30 from heart failure, which was said to be attributed to AIDS, uh, which he had contracted himself. Oh, no. Wow. That's tragic. Yes. And when you said batteries not included, that's what... Okay. I recognize him from that. Yeah. See, I remember more from, of course, the Miami Vice episode and the band of the hand. Gotcha. All right. Hey, it's that actor. My hey, it's that actor is the actress Meg Foster, the aforementioned uh, Meg Foster. She plays the character of Ms. Martin. Representative for the Tri-Oceanic Corporation in this film. I'm not sure what her exact position was in the corporation, but she's a higher up uh, supervisor. Let's just put it that way. I'm not sure, but her character we see mostly on a monitor TV screen getting reports from Peter Weller. And she then tells him to stay put and lies about hurricanes and ends her communication transmissions without ever saying goodbye. But Meg Foster, she has those unmistakable ice-cold blue eyes. Her resume on IMDb goes all the way back to 1969. She worked on several big TV shows throughout the 70s and then come to the 80s. Uh, she does The Emerald Forest in 1985. She plays Evil Lynn in Masters of the Universe in 87. Then, yes, that's right. She was on two, count them, two episodes of Miami Vice as well from 87 to 88, in which she played D.A. Alice Carson. And uh, then she was in They Live, which I definitely recognize her from. Uh, They Live, one of my favorites, one of our favorites, I should say, uh, was also in 88. And she was in Blind Fury in 89. Now, here's an interesting factoid. Remember the show Cagney and Lacey? Yes. Well, Foster didn't really come to attention until 1982. She then replaced Loretta Swit as Christine Cagney in Cagney and Lacey. She was on six episodes. Then she herself was later replaced by Sharon Gless. CBS reportedly wanted a more feminine actress playing the role of the detective. Man, bummer. Yeah. Now, Meg Foster has said in interviews that she sometimes wears tinted contacts when filming because her natural eye color can come across as a character trait all its own. I believe that. Meg Foster's still with us and still working. She has some upcoming projects. I also want to mention it was not too long ago in 2017. She was in Jeepers Creepers 3. So she's still doing it. Wow. Meg Foster. Yeah. I mean, what does she maybe have? Five minutes screen time? I fucking hate her. Totally. Ugh. Every time she's on screen, I see her in anything. I, I just assume she's going to be evil. Yeah. She's good. Got a cool voice. Yes. She's got a lot going. Yeah, just a little stereotyped or pigeonholed in certain roles. Mm. All right, so that takes us to facts and trivia. What are some facts and trivia we have about Leviathan? There are very few scenes in the film that were actually shot underwater as production went for the dry for wet look, with most of the scenes inside the shack taking place on sound stages and a tank measuring 130 feet by 270 feet. I thought that looked really good. I mean, you yeah, have to I really it. look for it to know that they're not actually in the water. 
because we talked a, a little bit about it and for your eyes only some of the stuff that they did in order to achieve the dry for wet look so that's not the first movie we've touched on about it but yeah this certainly looks way better than it did for your eyes only so we talked a little bit about the filming so the filming locations for the movie took place in malta the adriatic sea and the gulf of mexico near mexico there we go our uh, location manager bill bant when doc is analyzing six packs skin sample the computer reports back the phrase of unknown origin. This is a winking nod to director George P. Cosmatos and star Peter Weller having previously collaborated on the movie of unknown origin from 1983. You know what's funny about that? Because I looked up to see what that movie was and mm-hmm. I've actually seen it. I totally forgot about it. Doesn't surprise me at all, Bill Bent. You've seen every movie known to man. That is not true. No, I know. You've missed like four. That's definitely one I need to go back and watch again because I kind of remember a little bit of it, but not too much. I mean, it's basically Peter Weller is home alone trying to kill a rat, but it's not in the mouse hunt nice kind of vibes. Got it. Yeah, here we go. It took uh, 50 to 60 spec drawings for the director to agree upon the final look for the creature. And in the end, bits and pieces of all the drawings were combined to create They say here it's the Leviathan, but I wouldn't necessarily call it the Leviathan. That always confused me, too. Just assumed the Leviathan was what the names of the creatures was, but it really is the ship. I don't know if you call the creature Leviathans, right? It's both. It's both. When I provided the definition of Leviathan, it is the sea monster. It is the creature. So it's got that double meaning. It is a name for, exactly, the Leviathan happened to also be the name of the ship. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Speaking of the underwater sequences, chicken feathers were used at one point of shooting the underwater sequences to suggest things were floating around in the water. According to Alex Thompson, this did not work because the feathers were floating side to side instead of up and down, and the idea had to be scrapped altogether. Yeah, what was the effect then? Because it does add to the believability. So that added effect, you know, when they're walking around in their suits on the seafloor and you see specks of things floating in the water. Like, oh, that adds to the believability. But uh, if it wasn't chicken feathers, then what did they use? Yeah. Um, So my last fact is, in addition to producing the creatures in the film, director Cosmatos allowed Stan Winston to direct some of the second unit action sequences. That's right. I did read that. Yeah. Yeah, it's kind of crazy. Yeah, it sounds like they had fun making the movie. Yeah. From what I read. Stan Winston seemed to be pretty surprised, like just the the freedom that he was given and some creative control or just the fact that Cosmatos was so indulging and open to Winston's input. Yeah, my last little tidbit is a second time that Richard Crenna worked with George P. Cosmatos after Rambo First Blood Part Two, which also had a Jerry Goldsmith score. Yeah. Yeah, I think if you were to randomly ask someone who directed Rambo, I don't think most people would know that. Yeah, Stallone must have liked him if he used him for Rambo and then Cobra. Yeah. So let's move on to box office. So Leviathan was released on March 17th, 1989 in 1,393 theaters on an estimated budget of $25 million. It grossed $15.4 million domestically. The film opened number two at the U.S. box office behind the debut of the Chevy Chase-led sequel, Fletch Lives. The movie would only stay in the top ten for another two weeks. So it was a bomb. Oh, yeah, all these undersea movies came out in 89, and none of them really did that well. 
So moving on to reviews, when growing up in the 80s, we'd watch Gene Siskel and Roger Ebert at the movies to hear the reviews and watch clips from upcoming releases. Their review of Leviathan was split. Even though Roger has seen this story multiple times, he thought it was still an effective thriller. Gene felt sorry for Amanda Pays and Peter Weller, who were trapped in a familiar story. Rotten Tomatoes gives it a tomato meter score of 24% and has an IMDb rating of 5.8. So that takes us to additional thoughts and questions. What are some additional thoughts and questions you have about Leviathan? I wanted to touch on that Siskel and Ebert review only to say that encapsulates this perfectly. Sums it up. One feels like it was a fun movie that used common tropes. The other one said because it used all these common tropes, it was no good, but you had a good cast in it. I mean, it just kind of, it's just one or the other. You can sit back and have fun with this, not think about it too much, enjoy the trope because it works, as I've said, or you can watch it like I watched it today and with a little bit more of a critical adult analytical mind and say, uh, I, I've just, I've seen this done and done better. And this version didn't work for me. Their review totally made sense to me. I'm starting with a question, Bill Bear. Okay. What's the deepest that man has traveled in the ocean? Didn't James Cameron actually make it to the trench recently? At he some did, point? as a matter of fact. In 2012, filmmaker James Cameron of Titanic and Avatar fame completed the first solo mission to the bottom of the Challenger Deep, which is in the Marion Trench, and his vessel, the Deep Sea Challenger. However... In 2019, Ooh. Victor Vescovo reached a deeper part of Challenger Deep. That's the region. It's called Challenger Deep, the Mariana Trench. At 35,853 feet. I guess James Cameron was just about like 50 or 60 or 70 feet short of that. Yeah. Anyway, yes. Is that when he released the uh, Megalodon? I, I'm not familiar with that. Oh, for the, the movie Meg. Oh, yes. Right. I was going to reference, I'm going to reference that, I think, in a little bit here, actually. It's funny. Uh, so yes, 2019, Victor Vescovo reached 35,853 feet, which is approximately 6.79 miles, breaking the record for the deepest dive in the DSV limiting factor was the name of the vessel. His dive was part of the five deeps expedition to reach the bottom of every ocean on Earth. And then in 2020, former NASA astronaut Catherine Sullivan became the first woman to reach the deepest point in the ocean and the first person to travel both to space and to the Challenger deep. That's cool. Yeah. Can you imagine? Which is interesting to me because the character of Willie played by Amanda Pays in this movie, she actually has a line where she says she's studying to become an astronaut. Yeah. Doing her astronaut training here in real life in 2020, we have a woman that's been in space and to the deepest part of the ocean. That's intense, man. It's awesome. It's quite an accomplishment. Victor Vescovo described the bottom of the Challenger Deep, that region, as a flat beige basin covered with a thick layer of silt. It was chilly and quiet. You know what else he found down there, sadly? <laughs> he found at the ocean's deepest point, pollution. He found a plastic bag and candy wrappers. Oh, my God. While past research has discovered elevated concentrations of PCBs, a chemical banned in the 1970s, in Mariana Trench crustaceans, amphipods have been discovered with microplastics in their stomachs. Traces of carbon-14 from nuclear bomb testing have also been detected. In the deepest part of the ocean. That blows my mind. Yeah. I just got to shake my head. It's just a bunch of fuck-ups. 
good old human beings. Yep, instead of solve problems, let's just fight about everything. I'm going to leave it there. And throw our trash in the ocean. Yep. Not that I'm perfect. But oh, no. No. Next thing. All right. So here's, here's my first thought. So in the very beginning of the movie, when we see the whole cast and they're mining the silver and something happens to, to Jesus' aquatic gear, suit. His aqua- suit. Yeah. yeah, right, yeah. And Beck's calling for the dock. The dock's not there. And he's supposed to be there supervising. Right. What the hell was he doing? I mean, what, what can you really be doing in that mining station? I mean, it's not yeah. that big. I totally agree. I mean, it, he left a note on one of the monitors saying the dock is out. And right. so he's taking a little R&R, I guess. But how could he be in a place where he wouldn't hear the alert coming over the intercom when Beck is calling for him, you know? Right. So. I mean, what is he working on that he could have been working on there in the room with Beck? Right. Maybe just sitting there reading a book. He doesn't have to do anything. I mean, he couldn't have done anything more than Beck did, to be honest. But right. I just I was like, well, what are you doing, though? Like, he made a joke he was golfing, but... Right. Was he in a deep sleep of some sort? Yeah, we don't know. Yeah. Great question. Again, kind of part of the cool setup, because immediately we're a bit untrustworthy then of Doc, right? Mm-hmm. Why is he not at his station? Is he up to, to no good somewhere off in a dark corner of the mining vessel? Mm-hmm. I don't know. Bill Bant, if you were offered the chance to ride in a vessel down to the deepest parts of the ocean, would you take it? Yes. I'm fascinated by the ocean. Cool, man. Yeah, I'd like to think I'd say yes, too. I would. I think that would be a chance of a lifetime to be able to do something like that. Especially with James Cameron, you know? He could pick his brain on the way down. Oh, yeah, definitely. Why are you spending all your time making Avatar movies? <laughs> That'd be, uh... All right. Amanda Pays is attractive. We can both admit to that, right? No question. I just had a laugh at all the situations that they put her in to make sure they can get her down to her skivvies. Oh, sure. It's the 1980s. Yep. I forgot she was married to, or she still is married to Corbin Burnson. Oh, I, I don't know if I knew that. Yeah, I totally forgot about that. That's a late 80s power couple right there. Because he's sure. L.A. Law and she was doing Max Headroom and this. and Well, yeah, then she did the Flash TV show, the original one. But yeah, even like the fact when they're escaping and they got to get in the suits, it's like, oh, let me take my pants off first. Got to show some skin. Mm-hmm. Attractive woman. But yeah, the first time she's in her skippy, it looks like she's wearing like lingerie type underwear. Right. Like lace. I don't think she'd be wearing those type, that type of undergarments. Anyway, good call. Very, very 80s. Here was thought, hey, if the Tri-Oceanic Corporation was trying to cover this up or had already reported that the crew of Shack number seven was dead, why did they send rescue? I understand that Beck had sent out the SOS, but isn't Miss Martin kind of controlling things on the surface and controlling the narrative of what's happened to them? I was a little surprised that when they reached the surface, there was already a chopper looking for them. I thought if there was this conspiracy or maybe this corporation, the Trioceanic Corporation, was trying to cover this up or wanted to keep this under wraps and control the situation, they would just allow them all to die. Yeah, I agree with you on that because even she's telling them the hurricane's coming and they're trying to look at the weather service and it's blocked. And then Willie comes up with the idea of, well, let me check how my stocks are doing. And that's how they find out that they're supposedly dead. Like, why don't you block everything? Why are you letting any information going in or out? Yeah. And just funnel it to just communication with her. And she'd just make an excuse like, 
Yeah, because of the hurricane, communication's down too. This is the only way we can talk to one another. Right. Her bad. Bad on her for not doing a good job of smothering the whole thing, I guess, or quieting the whole thing. The Russians. All right. So they put the people on the boat to try this genetic experimentation that goes wrong, and they sink the boat. But don't they still have the formula, you would think, somewhere? <laughs> sure. It's not like they put all their eggs in one basket. Absolutely. So no one on that Russian boat knew what was going on? Supposedly, they didn't. No. That seems odd to me. You would think someone would know, mm -hmm. especially the captain. That didn't make any sense. Because it seems That's like true. You would definitely think they would have somebody on the inside that has the no or that is in the no because too many things could go wrong, right. which it did, obviously. Mm -hmm. So the Russians are still working yeah. on this formula, I guess, for genetic alteration. I think this is a, just a, an obvious thought. I think there is room here for a spinoff sequel reboot of some sort where I think it'd be cool to have a sequel this many years later where this genetic virus was released once again somehow or gets out again even though the the station imploded and everything it's not like all evidence of that virus was destroyed i don't think yeah why would you even keep the virus in the bottle put it in the safe uh, there's a lot of questions yeah lots of questions even at the end when they he throws the detonation charge into the mouth of the creature and it explodes what difference does it make we've seen separated limbs come to life it could explode into a million bits and pieces, right. and it can still survive. Yeah, there's like a whole little army of... I'm sure the Coast Guard would say something. It was a big creature. Yeah. It was three times bigger than the one that was in the, the mining facility. Yeah, it was huge. Yeah, you could do a, you could still do a lot. We, go ahead. Go yeah, ahead. They're not making another movie, that's for sure, after this one bombed. But uh, I need a book. I need a book to find out what the hell happened. <laughs> You're very curious. I like it. You want to know. I do. Bill Bant wants to know. Yes. Uh, I have an additional thought, which is this movie should have been a little more, or could have been, not should have been, but could have been a little more self-aware. Like today, if you were going to reboot it, that's kind of how I would do it. Maybe kind of a winking at the audience type of intentional over-the-top good bad movie or really, really good B movie, not just an average B movie. It could have been entertaining in the way that that's my was my complaint about the Meg. You'd brought up the Meg with Jason Statham that came out just a couple of years back. I think it had the potential to be a great bad movie playing on all those tropes of that genre and knowingly doing so and, and having fun with it. But I just thought the movie almost really lost a lot, like missed a lot of those opportunities and, and just was just kind of a bad movie instead of a it could have been a lot more fun than I thought it was. That was my take on it. I don't know how the Meg did overall. I'm sure there's... They're making a sequel. Yeah, well, there you go. This is what I'll say about the Meg. Go read the book. I remember you... Yeah, you've said that to me before. Yeah. Love the book series, the movie, two totally different things. Outside of the fact there's a Meg and a Jonas Taylor. The character... Yeah, the character names are the same, and there's a shark. Everything else is pretty much different. And I think that was also a foreign-produced film, and it, something got lost in the translation yes. there, too. Yeah, I think they co-produced it with China. I just say, go read the goddamn book. Then you'll get it. It's, it's way better. Again, listen, between Leviathan, The Meg, whatever, what have you, they're not garbage movies. They're not trash. I can't believe it got made kind of thing. It's just, it wasn't very successful. And I mean, not box office wise, just, again, just done better. Oh, yeah. yeah. Regardless, here's my last question for you, Bill Bant. And okay. this is an interesting one because I don't know if I missed something. 
Is this supposed to be in the future? Yes. Supposedly, and I only found this in the research, and I should have went back to look to confirm it. Um, It takes place in 2027. That is correct, sir. That is what I saw in my superficial IMDb research as well. But that was not in the title cards, was it? No. I think you'd have to go back to the control room and really look around, and that might give it away in there somewhere. Sure. With the technology, is it just supposed to be obvious? Are we to understand that? And then I thought of the abyss as well, where you have like a facility that's way down on the surface, you know, the ocean floor or cliff. True. And is that just built in? Like we understand we don't actually have facilities like that on the ocean floor. So we know immediately when we see that, that it has to be in the future. Or maybe it's the near future, yet regardless, it's still the future. Right. They don't have to tell us it's in the future or have a title card that says it is the year 2027. We just assume it because we see actual human-built structures, man-made structures on the uh, ocean floor. So basically in 2027, just stay away from the beaches because all these little baby leviathans will be swimming ashore. And attacking you. <laughs> wow. It's a bleak vision. Not looking good. <laughs> With everything else going on, that's all we need. Fucking Leviathans. It is cool if we actually ended up having research facilities all the way down there. We could actually travel down there. All right. Let's move on to our ratings. So, Jason, on a scale of one to five genetic alterations, what do you give Leviathan? Aha. I love it. I am going to give this 2.5 genetic alterations. I may end up changing this down the line, so please don't hold me to it. But this is a party movie for a group of friends that are sci-fi horror film fanatics that want to have a laugh or make a drinking game out of it. It's a knockoff. The writing is thin. The characters are thin. Here's the deal. In this genre film, we know what we're going to get. Let's throw story and character development out the window, okay? We don't need a great deal of that anyway. I didn't want to get too much into that, even though I'm a big character and relationship development guy. But we do need a director that knows how to shoot a scary film. We need the tension. We need the pacing. We need the editing. We need proper lighting. We need proper sound design, good scares. And there wasn't enough of that for me in this. It just it lacks for me, but that's my opinion. So, okay, fine. Then it's just a fun, campy sci-fi movie. Great, but it's not really campy. It's just average. In the end, I know these people that are involved in making this. They're competent. They're extremely talented. I The cast, Jerry Goldsmith doing the score, Cosmatos has done good work. And unfortunately, because of that, I expect more. And for me, this was a waste of a lot of great talent. But in the end, you have a choice as to how to watch this kind of movie as a fun horror romp or a total ripoff of the classics. And unfortunately for me, upon this revisit, it came off as a ripoff of the classics. So that's why I give it a low uh, genetic alteration score. Not to say I like to always end on a positive note. There are some positive takeaways. I did have favorite moments and scenes. There are things about it that I appreciate still. Uh, what is your rating, Bill Bant? Well, this is funny because you gave it a bad 2.5. I'm giving it a good 2.5. Okay. All right. I like it. I like that spin. Yes. This is not a good movie. It's a blatant ripoff of The Thing and Alien. And we didn't even get that much into The Thing 
aspect of it. I dwell on the alien comparison, and there is a major thing comparison to right. be made, for but, sure. And that's okay. When you, if you decide to watch this yourself, you'll certainly see it. I like the cast. I think it's well shot. It goes quick. I just find it entertaining. It's a guilty pleasure. That's what it basically comes down to. It's just a guilty pleasure. Yeah. If you tell me this movie sucks, I'm not going to. I'm not going to try to defend it. I'll just I'll just agree with you. And if you love this movie, I, I see why. It's a solid 2.5 for me. Love it. That's great. That's so funny. thought for sure you were thrown out like a, somewhere in the ones. Oh, no. No, it wouldn't be that tough on it. That's my lowest score, I think, thus far. This season, yeah. Which, yeah. So I'm going to have to rethink it because now I think about films like Ice Pirates or Neighbors. And I think I gave those films like at least three. I don't know. No, no, you. No, did I? Did, yeah. Okay, so maybe this isn't score. my lowest score. No. Okay. No, yeah, this isn't your lowest score overall. Right. This, for season. this season. Yeah, for yeah. this season. Yeah, but no, I got you. No, okay. You, no, you, right. you killed neighbors and ice pirates, as did I. Thinking about wraps it up for this week's episode. As always, thank you so much for listening. Give us a review and rate us. If you want to reach out, you can email us at all80smoviespodcast at gmail.com. Please send us your feedback, questions, movies you want us to cover, or recipes to share. You can follow us on Facebook Meta at all80smoviespodcast. Catch us on TikTok at all80smoviespodcast or tweet us at podcastall80s. In our next episode, we'll be discussing 9 to 5 starring Jane Fonda, Lily Tomlin and Dolly Parton. Hope you join us again. Have a totally great week, everyone. Hey, I ain't gonna never be able to sleep again in life ever. Thanks for staying up with us. Good night, world. <laughs>